the National Board and of three of the five stations' boards. Again, for more information, including the language of the amendments, you can visit Pacifica.org. And you're listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up next, cover to cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday. Ah, the Ides of July, July 15th, 2014. Yesterday was Bastille Day. That was the day that the angry French peasants, I guess they were calling them peasants in those days, they broke into the great prison in Paris, stormed the Bastille. Uh, let's see. Actually, I, I still, I still have that down in my notes as the beginning of the French Revolution. It isn't that simple. But anyway, July 14th, <laughs> Beckett used to, used to mutter in his monologues, yes, Festival of Freedom. <laughs> anyway, I love his cranky, Monologues. God bless Samuel Beckett. Anyway, yesterday I noticed that not very many folks seem to remember or know about Bastille Day. There's a nice woman at Trader Joe's Market across the street here in downtown Berkeley. She said, oh, what's that? <laughs> Let me recite what history teaches. History teaches. That's the way Gertrude Stein puts it. <laughs> yes, well, folks. Ah, yes. Angst for the memory, liberty, equality, fraternity. Uh, in France now, they're using the word equity, I believe. You know, the point at which they said that half the women in the government had to be, half the people, persons in the government, had to be females. Ah, same old, same old. Um, the French Revolution did try to put women into the loop, you know, and it worked for a while. They even gave them the old calendar and anyway. Uh, the whole thing is just, what is the word? Uh, deja vu, deja vu all over again, over and over. We have the revolution and then the revolutionaries turn into the government and somebody once said, you know, no matter who you vote for, you always get government. Anyway, 
Ah, the world is waiting for the revolution. My favorite revolution, probably the last one. That's the one that's going to liberate females or the female principle. You know, it's kind of complicated because it isn't always just the biological uh, principle. It's, you know, half the human race. I mean, that's a solid fact, but uh, basically it's a way of looking at the world. It's an ideology. I like to put it in simple terms like, you know, the right wing is cruel and the left wing has compassion. But that's really too simple. Uh, it's it's kind of the best I can do. Uh, most of the time lately, people need a simple answer. They've figured out the brain. The brain works that way. The brain, well, the process, you know, they'll... Uh, They'll always, the little brain cells, they'll always grab hold of the shortest, easiest, you know, just say no, that kind of thing. That's what sticks, sticks to the roof of your skull there, you know. And, uh, you know, uh, if they ask you to think again, it's painful, it's uncomfortable anyway. I wanted to talk today about the writer Nadine Gordimer, and I can't find the book July's People that I wanted to read to you from, darn it. I, maybe I can find it by next Tuesday. Uh, now, uh, Nadine Gordimer died on Monday, day before yesterday, 13 July. She was 90 years old. And her revolution, that is the one she hoped for actually happened South Africa, Nelson Mandela oh boy how we celebrated here in Berkeley it's wonderful you know to have things happen a world away <laughs> anyway I remember a couple signs saying well now what about Oakland anyway you know uh, what happens when there's a revolution uh, things get better and then well, the way of the world takes over, and I don't like to be negative or to uh, say that the uh, revolution in South Africa was not a good thing, <laughs> but the reports are not good. Things are pretty grim, you know, it's all about economics. You remember how it was in this country when we fought that civil war to give freedom, legal freedom, to those African captives taken from their homelands, put to work building our so-called civilization, <laughs> freedom, emancipation, freedom to starve in many places, to become economic slaves. Uh, you know, so many of them were just fired from the plantations. They were left to uh, share their crops, you know, that is to say, they had to work on land that they did not own. <laughs> 40 acres and a mule. I was thinking the other day that 40 acres would be a not bad, not bad deal. I think that we should uh, talk about that for reparations. You can keep the mule, but sh I think sharecroppers 
who didn't get their 40 acres should be able to uh, apply. Yes, apply for 40 acres. Uh, let's see. I don't even think they should have to prove that their ancestors were enslaved by our government. Anyway, cease, Jennifer. No more rants. I just thought last night about Nadine Gordimer, and I do remember that, uh, well, let's see. She was about uh, 17, she said, when she wrote her first short story that had to do directly with uh, apartheid. And uh, it was straightforward, very direct. It was about the effects uh, on a, a black shopkeeper, I think, uh, police, you know, busting things up. Anyway, it was a solid uh, fiction, of course. <laughs> but anyway, I was thinking that my first attempt to write about racism in this country was a big chunk of surrealism that I'm not going to talk about. Maybe one of these days I can read it because it's a sort of obscure nonsense that didn't make the point at all. I thought people would understand it because it was about the, um, uh, I guess I would say, the, the murder of the black woman who helped to raise me. You know how it is. Uh, little children see things and they know that something is wrong. They can't really put their finger on it. Nadine Gordimer says that when she was a child, of course, she just took things as they came. She said that uh, her mother was, uh, you know, part of the colonial, colonial, what do we call that? Uh, <laughs> the colonial masters, yes. Uh, now, Nadine Gordimer won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And I have to remember that when she was growing up in South Africa, uh, she was a Jew, and her early years, think about it, she was growing up between the two world wars, right? So I think she got it probably faster than people in America. Uh, think of Doris Lessing. Uh, both of them part of that white colonial world. The early 20th century, all kind of different points of view. Uh, I don't know, at that point, racism was not seen as, uh, it wasn't about rights or politics. It was about uh, <laughs> humanity, maybe. Uh Benign, that is, benign neglect. Uh, I just call it economic slavery today. Uh, I guess, I guess it is better. I mean, the chains were pretty bad. I, I'm never sure about that. Someone told me the other day that they were grateful for all the drugs today for people who had mental illness because in the old days they put them in cages and chains. I said, yes, but the, uh, you know, uh, the drugs turn people into physically disabled individuals and uh, people in the cages, they might have been uh, able to get better if someone let them out anyway. Uh, always measuring the, the uh, ills of the world. Uh, I think that the time comes when the evidence of inequity, inequality, uh, 
human human um, meanness can no longer be ignored and then uh, things get real and it's official and you remember reading about the past books taking away the native African civil rights you know if they had had any I mean, it was their country they they uh, were uh, there first anyway rights became the issue law became the uh, <laughs> the thing to argue about I was watching a film with Marlon Brando the other night very funny um, they were talking about the laws and uh, uh, he tells uh, an advocate for freedom he says oh, don't be silly you know uh, we'll just change the law if you do thus and so we can you know we can just change the law because it's uh, ours to do it's our laws anyway politics is and was institutionalized racism I'm thinking of Nadine Gordimer trying to trying to shape her mind around, you know, using fiction to tell truths and, you know, when you write novels, it's a little different. She was not a polemicist. She was not uh, a journalist, radical. Let's see, 1924 she's born. Yes, little kid. Middle of the century is when she really comes into her own. Uh, I think most writers, the best, worry about being propagandists. Uh, she was a thinker, of course. I don't think it's a problem. Neruda said, well, you know, I, I don't uh, want those people to like what I'm saying. Uh, most of her novels were banned in South Africa, certainly before the revolution. Today, the laws now say that all Africans are free to read and write whatever they wish. Of course, I don't know if they can afford the books. All things are permitted, and now nothing, <laughs> nothing is possible. I'm looking at my engineer. I need him to come in here and tell me if something is wrong. Wesley, what's wrong, dear? Do, wrong. I was... do I see a light? No, sweetie, just tell me. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's over here now. Oh, okay, right. I gotcha. If I'm on, just wave, right. <laughs> Wesley's trying to give me the, the right microphone, and I, of course, am technologically illiterate. <laughs> I'm a roadkill. On the new information highway. Uh, anyway, uh, I was just trying to get my mind around the idea that there is no oppression more deadly than poverty. The crime rate in South Africa is sky high, and we know why that is. Charlie Dickens, the old Victorian hypocrite, he used to say that ignorance and want are the two great evils in human society. He used to illustrate this with a picture of a little girl. She was, uh, she was poverty, and the little boy was ignorance, and Dickens said that ignorance was more sinister because, well, you know, it comes first. 
That's where it starts, in any case. When Nadine Gordimer came into her own, when she became educated, when her uh, ignorance, if you want to call it that, her uh, innocence fell away and she read and she studied, she came to see and understand the plight of her country. I mean, you have to be shown, you know, if you're used to thinking that things are uh, okay, somebody had to tell her that... (laughs) It wasn't working. Now, my first exposure to her thinking was a novel called July's People. July is the name of a character who uh, was one of her servants. Now, I kind of perceive that the novel's central character represents the author. You know how that goes. Uh, It's her voice coming through uh, the novel presents a white woman, South African woman, caught in the throes of a people's revolution. (laughs) And, well, it's a hypothetical revolution. hadn't happened yet. Anyway, uh, during this struggle, this character, this central character, comes to depend upon her servant, July. He's now keeping her safe, keeping her alive, taking care of her because she might just be in serious danger. She flees from the chaos and uh, at one point she's living in his world without the amenities and uh, luxuries and even the uh, (laughs) even the soap that she was used to. She becomes aware or educated. (coughs) She recognizes her privileges because she's forced to live uh, well, for several days without a bath. Now, she learns to her chagrin that uh, <laughs> she has body odors. Um, after about the third day, when I was a young woman, I was startled. Gosh, I never read in a novel uh, anything about a woman's deciding that, well, <laughs> well she needed uh, a douche. She describes her uh her embarrassment when she realizes that soap and water are necessary to keep her uh, dainty. Now, this was not the sort of thing I was used to. Liberation is so curious. I learned how well denial works to keep us ignorant, to avoid the truth. Uh, Yes, to ignore. Ignorance. Yes, ignore the facts. Be pretty pretend. Now, I think, yes, uh, when I was a teenager, she was 17, let's see, she's 10 years older than I, uh, and I thought I knew the real story, uh, at least the real story here in America. I don't think I knew very much about South Africa. But I did know that if women spoke, you know, if they spoke up, there would be trouble. I didn't know the real differences between what uh, women could say in South Africa and what they could say in Southern California. The poet Muriel Rockheiser told us that if one woman told the truth about her life, the world would split open. I... I guess women have uh, 
told the truth about their bodies, but uh, uh, I found that it was almost impossible to get that kind of material published. Uh, anyway, I uh, studied, and then I found out that all over the map, truth uh, is, what is it, always a little clouded. Uh, the lies and ambiguity, it's all just a matter of degree. Uh, remember Gertrude Stein, she wrote in code. She reinvented language. She would be the generation before Nadine Gordimer. Gertrude took an axe to syntax. She used style as her weapon. Isaac Dennison, let's see... She used her colonial experiences in East Africa to paint portraits. I don't know whether we could call them, call them, well, they certainly weren't freedom fighters. She went for poetic images, very moving, I thought. Some of her portraits of the Somali women, the mothers, I, I was looking for that last night, I think I have wonderful description she wrote of these women who, of course, had suffered from FGM, female genital mutilation, and their great dignity. And uh, and yet, you know, she doesn't tell us the reasons, the, the cause, the bloody tortures and practices. Uh, she says that the older women made her think of the ancient goddesses, uh, Anyway, uh, Out of Africa is that wonderful memoir of uh, Isaac Dennison's inner life. She's not uh, political at all. Doris Lessing was one who died not so long ago. She's a contemporary, really, of Nadine Gordimer. And both of them come out of the white culture in South Africa. Doris Lessing... Uh, became far more, well, let's call it barricades broad. She was direct, explicit, severe at times. Uh, she wrote a book called The Golden Notebook. That was a feminist manifesto. The uh, great women writers of that time, uh, well, they have very little in common, except they're so much alike. That is to say, uh, they are nothing alike to look at, to uh, to read. Uh, but they are, um, what is the word? Uh, they are a synthesis of the feminine soul, the female plight, you know, the search for truth. Um, someone, someone used to say... Uh, when they write, they're not women with a capital W. <laughs> Meaning, of course, they're not propagandizing. They're not uh, running around with a feminist fist in the air. They are only becoming great writers and thinkers. Which, of course, is the province of the masculine. <laughs> anyway, that will get me started on Virginia Woolf, so I better... Uh, I better jump ahead here. Uh, uh, Virginia Woolf always said that whether women, she says we, whether women write well or badly is neither here nor there. 
Uh, the question is whether we write truly. She goes on to say whether it lasts for a day or forever is beside the point. Uh, <laughs> she's into things being authentic. And, of course, she is speaking for herself, not for others. Uh, she does point out that uh, the little books, she calls them little pockmarked apples lying in the used bookstores, written by women who altered their opinions to please others. She said those were the things that pained her. Uh, Gertrude Stein said, let me listen to me, not to them. <laughs> now, that's damn near impossible. Uh, Nadine Gordimer's most famous quote, as far as I'm concerned, is when she said that a writer must write as if she is already dead. I will repeat that. You must write as if you are already dead. Got it? How can anybody do this? Who can write without any concern for what the others will think? Uh, hmm. Iconoclast, that's what such a writer is. They can blast lives. Anais Nin wrote that when she published her diaries, she dreamt that she had opened a door and been met by a nuclear blast. Uh, anyway, on the simplest level, I just ask myself, if I trust myself not to use makeup, not... Uh, <laughs> Not to hide the blemishes, you know, but uh, to make things more beautiful, you know, to fluff up, to make things attractive. Emily Dickinson wrote, tell the truth, but tell it slant. Now, just how do we do that? How do we write in such a way that people uh, want to read us? How do we make ourselves attractive without the lies. Oh, this is a question women have been asking since they were women. <laughs> I said to Simone de Beauvoir, she says, we are not born women, we become women. We have to learn how to make ourselves appealing and attractive because we are not the measure of all things. The male is the measure of all things. Anyway, uh, yes, tell the truth, but tell it slant. How do we, yes, how do we write in such a way that readers can trust us? How do we use the laughter, you know, as a kind of Vaseline to make things penetrate in the brain, right? Mm-hmm. It's a Lena Wertmuller image. <laughs> we also need what Hemingway called the built-in shockproof S detector. He also said, you're right, not because you want to say something, but because you have something to say. Strange thing is that I have never known a woman writer who didn't have something to say. That is to say, uh, the very fact that she's writing means that she is radical. Uh, was it... Um, the line, writing is fighting. That's Ishmael Reed. That's his favorite line. Uh, I wanted to read you 
some passages from Virginia Woolf that kind of sum up <laughs> this woman thing, woman with a capital W, something about uh, human freedom. And I'll save it for next week. This has been Jennifer Stone till next Tuesday at 3 o'clock. Uh, this has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to make a short film, five minutes or less, within 48 hours. You're invited to assemble your team and rendezvous at Berkeley Community Media's studio on Friday, July 25th at 5 p.m. There, during the launch party, you'll be given three ingredients to incorporate into your film. You'll have 48 hours to write, shoot, edit, and return with your film by Sunday, July 27th at 6 p.m. To recap, that's the fourth annual BCM 48-Hour Filmmaker Challenge, Friday, July 25th to Sunday, July 27th at Berkeley Community Media, 2239 Martin Luther King Jr. Way in Berkeley. This is a benefit for Berkeley Community Media. For more information, call 510-848-2288 or go to www.betv.org. RSVP today at the BCM Facebook page. Manager stations are KPFA, KPFB, and KFCF. Workweek Radio begins now.